Okay, let's go ahead and get our Bibles out. Turn to Judges chapter 19, which in your black pew Bibles should be on page 218, I believe. Let me also mention briefly that I'm getting over a little bit of a sore throat, so <clears throat> might be a lot of coughing and throat clearing as I work my way through this two-hour sermon. <clears throat> the United States of America has officially declared war 11 times in its 245 years of existence. And that's not including all the other official but not official military conflicts that we've been in that were not stamped with a congressional approval like Iraq and Afghanistan. Now, uh, on a recent elder and staff retreat, uh, we played a little game. We, we tried to see, we separated men in one group and women in another group, and we could write down all 50 states. You know, you don't get to eat until you write down all 50 states. Could we do it? I won't tell you who won. Now, I wonder if I gave everyone in this room a pen and a piece of paper, and I gave us an incentive, you know, you don't get to eat lunch until you do, and maybe a time limit, if you could write down all of the American wars, could you do it? We could probably play the game together right now. We could start off with the most recent wars, Iraq, Afghanistan, check, check. Then maybe we could move on to some of America's most famous wars, right? We could do the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, World War II, can't forget about that one. Vietnam. All right, but then after that, things start to get a little hazy, right? We're trying to, oh, trying to remember our ninth grade history classes. We have the Spanish-American War, right? You were probably thinking of that. We have the War of 1812, obviously. Can't believe we forgot about that one. What about our war with China? Do we remember that? You guys remember that? If you don't remember our war with China, it, you really, it's not your fault. You can't be blamed. It's because we didn't call it the war with China. We called it the Korean War. We called it the Korean War because officially that's who we were fighting, North Korea, after they invaded South Korea. But we were also fighting hundreds and thousands of Chinese troops. And yet the Korean War, this massive undertaking, this fierce battle, it's, well, it's really just you know, unknown to us as, oof, that's my daughter. <laughs> the Korean War is well known to war buffs, but to most Americans, it's the forgotten war. A lot of money was spent, much blood was spilled, and many lives were lost in the Korean War. And yet it hasn't really found a place in our corrective memory, uh, excuse me, collective memory. I wonder why that is. Well, there are a couple of reasons, but I think the main reason is timing. Timing is everything. You see, the Korean War was fought in between World War II and Vietnam, and that's a tough place to be. It's hard to find your own identity when you're the war that exists in between those two wars. Take World War II, for example. That's a hard act to follow. As far as wars go, World War II had it all. Villains like Stalin and Mussolini and Hitler and... Attacks on the homeland like Pearl Harbor and 
evil army units called the stormtroopers. Weapons like the atom bomb and an enemy known as the axis of evil. Then there's Vietnam. Vietnam is not nearly as theatrical as World War II, but it was one of America's most controversial wars carried out in the highly politicized, highly televised years of the late 60s and early 70s. And the Korean War is kind of like the middle child in between these two. It's very important, but easily forgotten. Every nation has its forgotten wars. Let's take uh, England, for example. England has been involved in several uh, well-remembered, big, glorious, spectacular wars throughout her history. But no one remembers the Cod Wars, do they? Does anyone here know about the Cod Wars? The three military engagements that England carried out with Iceland? Yes, Iceland. Ah, Nobody knows about that. The Forgotten War. The nation of Israel, as well, has her forgotten wars. Well known are the Maccabean revolts of the second century and the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in the first century. And Of course, there's the civil war between the sons of Solomon in the ninth century B.C. We know about these. But long before the nation of Israel split into northern and southern kingdoms, there was another war. Israel's first civil war. This is the war that we're going to be studying in today's text. This is the war that we read about as our sister Susan Fink so amazingly read all three chapters of the last three chapters of uh, the book of Judges for us. And this morning's text, it tells us a lot about Israel's first civil war. It tells us the date of the war. Well, we don't know the exact date, but based on clues from the text, if you go to chapter 20, verses 27 and 28, you can look at that later, we know that this war must have taken place very early on in the days of Judges. We know how the war began. World War I was started by the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand. The Korean War was started by the invasion of South Korea by North Korea. And Israel's first civil war was started by a series of unfortunate events involving a priest, a concubine, and a very wicked city in Israel. We know much about the battles of the war, three battles in particular, and we know the size of the fighting forces, 26,000 versus 400,000. We know the types of units deployed to battle. There were these left-handed slingshot special forces guys. We know the terrain of the land. We know the tactics of the armies. We know the weapons of the warriors, and we know the number of lives lost. This morning's text also tells us about the consequences of the war. An entire tribe in Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, is nearly eradicated from the face of the earth. But here's what you really need to know about this morning's text. It's not really about the war at all. The war is just the venue that God is using to display something, to communicate something else entirely. What exactly is he trying to show us through this war? Well, let me pray, and then we'll see for ourselves. Father, we pray that your people's hearts would be inclined to your word this morning. We pray that all the distractions that Satan may be trying to lure into this room and into their hearts, that they would dissipate, 
and that they would feast on your Son, Jesus Christ, as He is made available to us in your Word. We pray this in His name. Amen. Uh, This morning's text is the last major section in the book of Judges, and it is intended right at the very end of the book to just show you how utterly corrupt Israel is when she does what's right in her own eyes. And it does so by examining the nation of Israel at four levels. It begins by looking at the level of sin, uh, excuse me, it begins by looking at the sins at the level of the individual. Then it moves on, it expands out from that, and it looks at the sins of a city. Then it moves on, expands out from that, and examines the sin of an entire tribe. And then finally, it moves on and expands and examines the sins of the entire nation. And those will be the four points of this morning's sermon. But before we get into those four points, I feel like we need to kind of summarize what we read earlier. Even though our sister Susan did a fantastic job reading that text, it was a lot. And most of us haven't spent a lot of time reading Judges 19 through 21. So I just want us to walk back through it and to make sure that we're all on the same page. So I'm going to try to summarize these chapters for us, okay? Starting with Judges chapter 19. Uh, The chapter opens with a priest in Israel chasing down his concubine. Likely he has mistreated her, she's grown tired of his mistreatment, and she's run back home to her father in Bethlehem in Judah. The priest is not happy about this. He goes back to take his wife home. He chases her back to her father's house. Once he arrives at the father's house, the father is just showing tremendous hospitality to this priest. Stay a little while longer, won't you? Stay a little while longer, won't you? Have some more food. Take another rest. Don't go so soon. Likely, this is all being done because the father is afraid for his daughter. According to the laws and rituals of the ancient Near East, What the concubine did in fleeing from the Levite husband was a crime, and the Levite could take vengeance on her if he so chose. And so the father is likely trying to protect his daughter by heaping kindness upon kindness to this Levite. The Levite gets tired of this and finally says, I have to go. He begins his journey. He heads north, back to where he's from, and in order to get there, he has to pass through Jerusalem. In the text, it's known as Jebus. It's called Jebus because during this time, it has been occupied by the people called the Jebusites. The priest says, "Uh, we should not stop here because it's occupied by foreigners. So let's go on to whatever city is available next, whatever city belongs to us and to our people. And so they decide on their journey to stop at Gibeah. They are wrong about this decision. They think that their people are going to be the people who will treat them well, but as they will soon find out, Israel is just as corrupt as the pagan peoples in Jerusalem. They uh, go to the town square, looking around, hopefully someone, anyone there will take them and their band in and show them some hospitality. Nobody does. This is indicative of how bad things are in the city. So they decide they're going to spend the night in the town square. Not optimal, but as long as you can lay down and close your eyes, they'll they'll do it. They'll kick their feet up and get some rest and then head out the next morning. As they begin to kind of settle down for the night, they encounter an old Ephraimite. The old Ephraimite sees them in the town square and fears for them, approaches them and says, hey, this is not the kind of city 
where you just want to be kind of hanging out in the open, sleeping in the middle of the square. Don't do that. Come back to me. Come to my house where you'll be saved. You can rest. You can eat. You can get ready to go for the next stage of your journey. The Levite gladly accepts, and so they go to the house of the old Ephraimite. When they get there, they take off their sandals, they wash their feet, they begin to drink a little wine, eat a little food, and as they begin to sort of settle down for the evening, maybe getting cozy by the fireside, they hear a knock at the door. The men of the city of Gibeah have seen the Levite, and they have come for him. And they do not intend to treat him kindly. The text Uh, uses uh, verbiage that is uh, appropriate for a setting with small children. The men of the city said that they desired to know him, and we know what the biblical meaning of to know is. It's to lie with. So they want to mistreat him. They want to abuse him. They want to take advantage of him. The old Ephraimite man is not pleased with this, obviously, and he says, please don't do this wicked thing. He's a guest in my house. Remember that rationale. We'll come back to it later. The old Ephraimite man suggests, okay, maybe I'll just give them my virgin daughter and you can give them your concubine and they'll leave. And so they go out and they tell the crowd, we'll give you these two young girls and you can take them and you won't have to have the priest. And they say, no, 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 we want the man. Send out the man. They reject this offer. Finally, the priest loses patience, grabs his concubine, throws her out to the door. She throws her out the door, tossing her to the wolves. The men of the city take advantage of her all night long until she dies. The next morning, the priest gets up, assuming that his concubine, his property, is lost, and he just kind of gets ready to go. You know, I came here to get her. I couldn't get her. I guess it's just time to go home. And as he leaves, he finds her there lying lifeless at the doorstep. He kicks her, says, get up. We need to be going. She doesn't get up. So he takes her home, he carves her up, and he sends 12 pieces of her body to each of the 12 tribes of Israel with a message. Behold the evil that has happened here in the city of Gibeah. What will you do? That's chapter 19. It's probably the darkest chapter of the entire Bible. If chapter 19 were to be made into a movie, it would not be rated PG or even PG-13. Then there's chapter 20. This horrific event, it sparks an outrage in Israel. Such an outrage, uh, such an outrage that the people of Israel very quickly gather together an army of 400,000 warriors to go address the tribe of Benjamin where this happened. The, the city of Gibeah was in the land of the tribe of Benjamin. So, What do the people of Israel do? They begin by sending a delegation out, and they do a little bit of an investigation. They talk to the priest. Tell us exactly what happened. Tell us how it happened. Are you sure it happened that way? And the priest says, yes, 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 like this. So after conducting an investigation, Israel gets together, and they say, we have to take a stand. Evil like this cannot be permitted in the land. So they send the delegation out throughout the tribe of Benjamin. Do you know that this has happened among you? Are you aware that this is how they get down in the city of Benjamin? Are you okay with your people acting like this? If you're not, you need to hand those men over to us so that we can do justice. Uh, The people of Benjamin, they refuse. They say, no, we're going to protect 
the city of Gibeah, our men, our people, our tribe, we are not going to hand them over for destruction. And then we read of the first civil war in Israel. There are three battles. Essentially, Israel has 400,000 troops, and they think, ah, we got this, 400,000 versus their 25,000, but things don't quite work out that way. There might be something going on right now in current events that kind of feels like the same thing. You know, you just expect this mighty army would go in and crush this weak, and it doesn't quite happen that way. And so Israel goes in, and they lose the first two battles. Finally, they're distraught. They're brought low. In repentance, they go before the Lord, and they say, are you sure we're supposed to be fighting this war? Are you sure we should go out and attack these guys again? Because they're kind of kicking our butts. The Lord says, yes, you should go. And so finally, they go out the third time, and they achieve victory. But the way that that victory is described in verse 35 is like this. Yahweh defeated Benjamin. But it doesn't stop there. The people of Israel are so inflamed with anger and indignation that even after the people have, uh, even after the tribe of Benjamin has lost the war, the violence does not come to an end. The warriors of Israel utterly decimate the tribe of Benjamin. Men, women, and children gone, animals slaughtered, food plundered, cities burned to the ground. Then we go to chapter 21. In chapter 21, we read that the people of Israel were so angry with the tribe of Benjamin that they said, no matter what, we will not give our daughters to their sons in marriage so that they can repopulate. It was a vow taken in haste. And pretty soon, they begin to regret what they've done to the tribe of Benjamin. They they cry out to God, oh God, how could this be? One of your 12 tribes is about to be just utterly wiped off of the face of the earth. They're not going to be able to repopulate. What are we supposed to do? They cry out to God in agony, but they never ask God's advice. And so they just do what seems right in their own eye, and they come up with what cannot be considered anything other than a harebrained scheme to help the people of Israel, excuse me, the tribe of Benjamin, repopulate. What they do is they say, hey, Here's what we're going to do. We're going to find who didn't come out with us in solidarity against the tribe of Benjamin. Was there anyone who didn't come out in solidarity with us against the tribe of Benjamin? And after they ask themselves that question, upon further investigation, they find out, yes, the people of the tribe of Jabesh Gilead, they they did not come out. They say, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to punish them. We're going to get together a small army. We're going to send that army over there to steal their virgins. And if anybody tries to fight us when we steal their virgins, we'll kill them. That works. But they, they don't get enough women. They only get 400 women in all, which apparently is not enough to repopulate an entire tribe. So plan A didn't quite work. They move on to plan B, which is even more ridiculous than plan A. They say, okay, we got to get some more women somehow. How are we going to do it? Well, there's a big feast at Shiloh. Every year there's a big feast. And we know that virgins go down and they dance at this feast. Why do virgins go and dance at this feast? I don't know. But they do. And they say, okay, Benjamin, tribe of Benjamin, your 600 warriors that were left over, here's what you're going to do. You're going to go out and you're going to get in the bushes. And you're going to lie in wait. And as soon as you see these virgins hit the dance floor, you're going to go grab them. You're going to steal them. You're going to take them home. And if anybody tries to stop you, you're going to kill them. But 
that sounds like an okay plan, Israel, but what are we going to do if the men come and complain? Well, Israel says, don't worry, we'll handle that. If they come to us, we'll say, hey, sorry, guys, you know, we didn't really leave enough people behind to repopulate them after we crushed them, so this is kind of what we have to do. Sorry, your wife has to be lost in the process, your virgins have to be lost in the process, but this is just kind of the way it is. War is hard, you're just going to have to deal with it. And then Israel foolishly believes that they settled the matter. Okay, Benjamin has their women. They're going to go back and rebuild their cities. And then everyone in Israel just kind of disperses and goes back to their own uh, tribal lands. And then the author ends all of that nonsense. Chapters 19, chapter 20, and chapter 21 with one phrase that's meant to encapsulate all of it. In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. <laughs> no kidding. So, that's the summary of the text. Let's get into our four points. The first point is the sins of the individual. The sins of the individual. <coughs> the first sin that we encounter in this story right out of the gate is the sin of the priest. Where to begin with this priest? Well, we could begin with his concubine. Having a concubine is bad. And as you know, and as the priest surely knew because he's a priest, that's kind of his thing, having a concubine is bad because it's out of line with God's good design for marriage. God's good design for marriage is not you and your wife and then your three other slave wives. God's good design for marriage is one man, one woman, covenanted together for life. Anything outside of that is sin. Taking a concubine has no place in God's good design for human flourishing, but it was very much a part of Canaanite culture. And so what the author of Judges is doing is, is, is he's showing us right as soon as the book opens that things have gotten so bad in Israel that even a Levite, even a priest, someone who's supposed to lead the way in holiness in Israel, even he has been influenced by the pagan culture that surrounds them. Now we have to remember that a concubine is not just a man's second wife. It's not like he has his first wife and then his second wife and his third wife and he spends, you know, Mondays and Wednesdays with the first wife and Tuesdays and Thursdays with the second wife. That's not, the, and they're equal in the household and that's not the way it works. In the ancient Near East, a concubine and his relation, uh, a man and his relationship to his concubine was more like the relationship of a master and a slave than that of a husband and a wife. And you can see that all throughout this text. You can first just consider the language of the text. In verse 3 of chapter 19, uh, the man is called a husband to this concubine. But then later in chapter 19, verse 27, he's called a master. Secondly, you can see uh, the nature of this relationship when you consider the interaction between the priest and his concubine the morning after her brutalization. The text does not say that the next morning the priest went out to go search for his bride, to go check on his beloved, to see if she was okay. Why would he do that? He threw her out the front door like a piece of meat. He tossed her to the wolves. The text says that he was ready to leave without her. 
Yeah, the Levite had just assumed that his concubine had been taken. It wasn't great. I mean, he, he did value her in some sense because he chased her down, but did he value her in the right sense, like a husband would value a wife? No, not exactly. To him, the loss of a concubine might have, have been as significant as the loss of a piece of property, you know, a, a tax write-off at worst. And then finally, you can consider the harsh treatment of the concubine by the priest when he walks out the door and finds her lifeless body lying there on the threshold. He doesn't apologize for throwing her to the wolves. He doesn't check on her. He doesn't console her. In a tone that is so obviously callous, it could make a slave master jealous, the priest says, get up, we must be going. Now, as bad as this priest is, we need to move on because the priest is not the only individual in this story showcasing the sins of Israel at an individual level. We also have to talk about the old Ephraimite who met him in the town square and invited him in and gave him hospitality. At first reading, we might be tempted to believe that this old Ephraimite man, and by the way, if he's old, he has to be nice, right? That's what we tend to think. Old people are just good people, right? Not, not the case. Old people used to be young people, and many of them were very terrible. This old Ephraimite, he seems to be the good guy, but soon we find out that he is not the good guy. He has imbibed just as much as the moral narrat- uh, of the moral narrative of the culture as the priest has. We read in the text that the Ephraimite is willing to send out his virgin daughter to this angry mob of violent, sex-crazed men. Why does he do that? Well, look at chapter 19, verse 23. <coughs> And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this violent thing. The main concern in the mind of the Ephraimite Ephraimite is that he's going to be seen as a bad host. It might kind of seem foreign to us in, in our own day where uh, we just don't have a hospitality code that's very strong, you know, even compared to other modern countries in the Middle East, for example. American hospitality is just, it's, it's not that strong. But in the ancient Near East, they had a very strict, very important hospitality code that said that if somebody comes into your house, you have to protect them at all costs. What this means is that the old Ephraimite man is willing to sacrifice the safety and the dignity of his very own daughter in order to protect this hospitality code. Now here's the question. Does such a hospitality code come from Scripture? Does it come from the Bible? Is there anywhere in the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, is there any part of God's law that would lead us to believe that the hospitality Code is more important than the safety and dignity of our daughter? Of course not. So what we see here is that neither the guest in the story nor the host in the story understands that women are made in the image of God and therefore that they have inherent value, dignity, and worth. So here's a quick application question for you, men of Sixth Avenue. Do you understand? that women have inherent value, dignity, and worth. 
Do you understand that the little twig and berries you got does not make you special in God's sight? Do you understand that you do not have more inherent value, dignity, and worth than women? Listen to the language of creation in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. Listen to the language that God uses. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. There's nothing in this language that would lead us to believe that there is more value, dignity, or worth in the man than the woman. They are equally created in God's image. Now, listen, I'm sure that no one here would like hand their daughters over to a violent mob. And I'm, I'm sure that no one here would treat a woman the way that this Levite treated his concubine. I'm sure you wouldn't throw your woman out to be taken advantage of and treated like an animal. Don't be too quick to congratulate yourself on that. That's kind of like passing the highest ethical bar on what it means for like to treat women in a godly fashion, okay? So don't celebrate too soon. Let, let me ask some more questions. Let me just ask one question, and I want you to just do some good heart work here. Uh, evaluate your own heart and ask yourself uh, this question with, with the desire to, to find the truth there. Are there ways that you may be devaluing the image of God in women? Is there some way, is there some habit in your life, is there some inclination of the heart? Is there some pattern of thought that you have adopted that proves that in your heart you don't think that women have the same amount of value, dignity, and worth as men? The most obvious example of this that comes to my mind is that of pornography. Anyone who has ever watched pornography knows that pornography trains men to view women like animals like pieces of meat, like objects that only exist to satisfy the carnal sexual desires of the male species. Brothers, if you're here and you are secretly watching pornography, this word is for you. Today is the day for you to stop. Today is the day to repent. Today is the day to find somebody after service confess, and then get a plan and move forward in holiness. If you're a woman who's here watching pornography, the same thing is true of you. Today is the day to, con to confess, but let's not pretend that men and women are the same. We're not. And I'm really just trying to talk to men right now because, well, there's a special obligation on us to lead in holiness. Today is the day, brothers, to get rid of this evil, vile sin in your life. The women in those videos that you watch, they're real. I know as you look at it on the screen, it doesn't seem real. They're real. And they are being brutalized. And they are training you to think of women in a brutal fashion. And they're training other men in our society to think of women in such a brutal fashion. And if you're not wise and careful and godly, your sons might grow up to watch these videos. And your sons will be trained to view women in this, in this brutal fashion. The pornography industry can even exist in our society because at some level the pagan men of this earth 
believe the lie that women do not have the same amount of value, dignity, and worth as men do. And brothers and sisters, we are supposed to be distinct from the world. Men of this church, we are supposed to be distinct from the pagan men of this earth. The pagan men of this earth treat pornography like it's nothing, like it's no big deal. We laugh about it. We joke about it. It's killing women, literally killing women, enslaving women, and treating women like animals, and yet they just kind of laugh about it and treat it as if it's nothing. We are not supposed to be like that. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 11 says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. But you cannot expose them unless first you yourself need to be exposed. And if that's you, just confess. I've been there. I've been addicted. I've had to make the hard phone call. I've had to confess to my wife. To this day, I still have software on my phone and on my computer to protect me because, man, sin's a beast. Men, today, if you're watching porn, today is the day to stop. While we're on the subject, let me give one final exhortation for the men of our church. Train your sons. Train your sons to love women. Train your sons to value women. Train your sons to honor women, to respect women, and to protect women. Train them to be like Jesus. I know it's hard, hard to find good godly examples in the world today. Who can you point to? Well, you can point to all different kinds of places. You can point to men throughout church history who have led well in holiness. You can point to men in this local church who are doing a good job of loving women in their lives. You can point to Jesus who in the gospel gave himself up to save an impure, unclean woman, the church, from the consequences of her sin. And he did so at great expense to himself. Rather than hiding in the house, he went out and he died a bloody death. And he did it for a woman. Women, if you're here today and you have been hurt, abused, misused by men, I I hate that for you. I'm so sorry that you've been through that. I think about my daughters and as they grow up, how I would kill anyone who did anything like that to them. You know, my, my blood boils when I think about the way that I've treated women in my past before I got saved. But here's what you need to know. Jesus died because he loves women. Half of the human race, and he came to the earth to save you because he loves you, because he wants to restore you to the fullness of the image of God. Next, point number two, the sin of a city. The sin of a city. Not all cities are the same. From the city of Babel to Victorian London to New York in the 80s, there have always been cities that excel in evil. There have always been cities that specialize in wickedness. For whatever reason, it seems like, you know, these cities, they just kind of, they tend to be especially corrupt. The city from this morning's text, the city of Gibeah, was one of these wicked cities. City so wicked, in fact, that the author of Judges 19 is very intentionally drawing your mind back to the city of Sodom. You guys remember the city of Sodom from the, from the book of Genesis? It was a wicked city. The story is almost exactly the same there. Let me just run through the similarities. There are a bunch of similarities between Genesis 19 and Judges 19. 
In both stories, the story of Sodom and the story of Gibeah, the setting is a man traveling to a city. In both stories, the travelers intend to sleep overnight in the public square. In both stories, a man in the city extends hospitality to his travelers by inviting them back to his home. In both stories, the townspeople go to the man's home and express a desire to have sex with the man and his male travelers. In both stories, the homeowner rebukes the townspeople for their wickedness. In both stories, the homeowner attempts to protect his guest. And in both stories, the homeowner offers his virgin daughter in place of the man. Finally, in both stories, the townspeople refuse the offer and demand the men. Friends, in the Old Testament, Sodom is the picture of wickedness. It is the embodiment of evil. What does it look like to utterly reject Yahweh, the God of the universe? It looks like Sodom. And here in Judges 19, the author is trying to show you how bad things have become in Israel by telling you the story that is exactly the same as the story of Genesis 19. Not exactly the same, but largely the same. What he's trying to do is show you that things have gotten so bad in Israel that there is no longer a corrupt and wicked city out there amongst the pagans. No, now the wicked city is here with us in the promised land. We are the wicked city. Some cities are remembered for their glory. Consider Athens, Constantinople, Florence. Not uh, Florence, Alabama, Florence, Italy, although some would say Paris, Alexandria, right? Glorious cities, a lot of rich history. Other cities live in infamy, such as the story of Gibeah. Throughout the rest of Scripture, the Old Testament people of Israel remember Gibeah along with Sodom as the most corrupt city in their land, the city that started the first civil war. In Hosea chapter 9, we read this, the people of Israel have corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah. And then in chapter 10, from the days of Gibeah, you have sinned, O Israel. This is a demarcation in the history of Israel. And you're going to see the same sin recapitulated, another uh, repeated, the same pattern over and over and over again. Point number three, the sin of a tribe. The sin of a tribe. <coughs> These terrible events in Gibeah, they happened in the land of the tribe of Benjamin. And when the rest of Israel hears about what has happened after a thorough examination of the evidence, they go to the leaders of the tribe of Benjamin and they demand justice. They say, hand over these terrible men, these leaders of Gibeah. And you can see the response of the Benjaminites in chapter 20, verse 13. Look there. In verse 13 we read, Now therefore give up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and purge evil from Israel. But the Benjaminites would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the people of Israel. They would not listen. They would not do what is right and just in the land. And make no mistake about it, what the people of Israel are trying to do here 
is right. It is just. You can see that in the language of verse 13, where it talks about purging evil from the land. This language of purging evil, it's the language of capital punishment. Capital punishment that was prescribed according to God's law to protect the holiness of Israel. It wasn't meant for just any old offense. You know, you say a four-letter word, you're getting stoned to death. That's not how it worked. It was meant to protect Israel from the most significant, most dangerous, most threatening sins in the land. So throughout the Pentateuch, you have prescriptions for capital punishment for all kinds of things like false prophets in Deuteronomy chapter 13. How dangerous is a false prophet? Well, he's coming and saying God says this when God has not said this. That's very dangerous. Uh, You see it prescribed for idolatry in Deuteronomy chapter 17. You see it prescribed for someone who bears a false witness in a murder trial. If you accuse someone and you try to put them to death and you're lying to get them put to death, God says that's a very dangerous thing. And so now you are the one who has to be put to death. The people of the tribe of Benjamin, they know that what has happened in their midst is evil. But rather than owning up to the sin... Rather than holding the men of Gibeah accountable, what do they do? They close their ranks and they choose tribal loyalty over faithfulness to the demands of the law. There's a word for this. It's called tribalism. Now, you won't find the word tribalism in the Bible, but you'll find the concept there. You find it in this morning's text and you find it in other places. Most commonly, the language that you'll here in the Bible is the language of partiality. So in James chapter 2, verse 1, James says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. In James chapter 2, verse 9, But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Paul tells young Timothy, as he prepares to enter into the fullness of his ministry, not to be partial, he says this, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels. So in case you're wondering how important this is, okay, Paul's like, in front of God and everyone, even the angels in heaven, I need you to hear the words that I'm telling you right now, Timothy. I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. That's in 1 Timothy 5.21. Why is partiality bad? Well, it's bad for a whole host of reasons, but we should start with the most obvious reason, because God himself does not show partiality, and we're supposed to be imitators of God. Romans chapter 1, verse 1. That's not right. Don't listen to that scripture reference. (laughs) It is somewhere said in the book of Romans, for God shows no partiality. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 9, Masters, do the same to them, that's your slaves, and stop threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven shows no partiality. Partiality is what we do when we prejudge, that's the language of James, when we render a judgment on a matter of justice and righteousness in advance according to factors that have no bearing on righteousness and justice. Factors like physical features, beauty, skin color, 
etc. Matters like class, are they rich or poor, high society or low society? Matters of origin, from this tribe or that tribe. Uh, Questions of shared experience, we were in the war together, so of course I'm going to take his side. Matters of common affinities, well he's a Yankees fan and I'm a Yankees fan, so you know. Prejudging a matter according to these factors is partiality, and partiality can significantly corrupt justice. Now, tribalism is not synonymous with partiality. Tribalism is like a subset of partiality. Tribalism says, I will be partial to you in matters of justice because we're from the same tribe, right? Now, let me pause and... uh, qualify what I'm about to say, there's nothing wrong with loyalty. There's nothing wrong with having a strong affection and bond uh, with those that are similar to you, that have shared experiences as you, those that come from the same place as you, who live in the same place as you. I love Decatur. I'm very partial to it. I'm glad to live here. I love my family and am more loyal to my family than I am to other people's families. And don't make me prove it. (laughs) I have an affinity for pastors who read the Bible the same way that I do. This way is better, I think, than that way. That's not the problem. Cliques are inevitable, guys. It's just a part of life. Tribes are part of how we exist on this tiny, weird planet. You know it's not sinful because God appointed 12 of them in salvation history. Anyone who comes to you and who says that tribes must be eradicated or that boundaries and borders must be erased or tribal markers of all kinds must be done away with, such a person is naive, and they have a utopian vision of humanity that should probably be ignored. The problem isn't with tribe. The problem is our unhealthy partiality to our own tribe. It's the way that our common affinity can blind us to truth and righteousness and justice. Tribalism is what happens when we find ourselves defending the indefensible because that person looks like me or comes from the same place as me or speaks the same language I do. Tribalism is when we always view the outsider as an enemy even as we ignore the enemy in our midst. Tribalism looks like a church finding out that someone on their staff has been abusing women and children in the church and then closing ranks to protect that person. Uh, We can't have that, you know, blemish on our record, our name, our tribe. Tribalism is what happens when you never critique your own party or clean up your own ranks. And boy, do we see a lot of that these days. Now look at chapter 20, verse 35. (coughs) Chapter 20, verse 35. And the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel. The text says that Yahweh, which is God's covenant name, that Yahweh himself is responsible for the defeat of Benjamin. These wicked people in the land of Israel that have tried to protect these evil men in their midst. And it's pretty significant that the text says that God himself defeated uh, Benjamin. And I'm going to tell you why. Throughout the book of Judges, we've seen a lot of violence. 
more specifically, we've seen a lot of violence that has been orchestrated, ordained, set in motion, and governed by the hand of God Himself. But up to this point in the book of Judges, all that violence has been directed towards Canaanites, Amalekites, Jebusites, towards all the wicked and pagan people of the land. And, and as we've been talking about that, we've been saying this, justice, uh, this violence is justified because these people are wicked and evil. They're, they're raping villages and plundering and they're, they're throwing their babies as sacrifices to these false gods and they're doing all these terrible things and God is using this violence to bring justice to them for their wicked deeds. And all of that is true. But here, at the very tail end of the book of Judges, we see God using violence to bring justice to His own people. God shows no partiality. If there is wickedness, evil, corruption, injustice in the promised land, God is going to wipe it out. It doesn't matter if it's the Canaanites doing it or the Israelites It doesn't matter if it's the Jew or the Gentile. God hates evil, and He's going to wipe it out from the land. He will bring the sword against it, even if it means that He brings the sword against His own people. The only reason that His people are not utterly wiped off of the face of the earth is because He's made a covenant of grace with them, that even though He will strike them, He will not utterly destroy them. Think about what that means for your life. Think about how God may be bringing the sword against you. How God may be striking you as you have adopted wicked and evil practices of this world. Maybe not even telling anyone, doing them in secret. If you belong to God, you should know that that is an act of love, and He's doing this. He's striking you in this way to to wake you up, to bring you to your senses, and you should know that the only reason you're not utterly wiped off the face of the earth, dead and gone and hell today, is because He's made a covenant of grace with you, and that grace is not meant to be spurned. You don't just say, ah, well, He'll forgive me again. You say, no, in light of His grace, I cannot keep doing this. None of that's in my notes. I need to keep going. In this morning's story, the Benjaminites refused to clean up their own ranks. And because of that, they suffer the terrible consequences of choosing the blood of their kin over the blood of their covenant. You see, it didn't have to be like this. They could have handed the wicked men of Gibeah over. They could have held them accountable. Yes, they would have lost some people from their tribe, but not very many people. But because they're unwilling to do that, they suffer a greater consequence. Which means, friends, that we have to recognize this truth, that a failure to clean up our own ranks and a failure to to hold our own accountable will only hurt us. It will never help us. Hiding sin will never help you. It won't help you individually. It won't help this church. It won't help a denomination. It won't help a seminary. It won't help a parachurch organization. Hiding sin always leads to something worse. Families are hurt. Ministries explode. Marriages fall apart. Children walk away from the faith. Reputations are damaged. Churches split. The faith of God's people are crippled. Now, let me tell you 
an amazing story about a member who's not here this morning. When I first came to this church, there was some tribalism here. Kind of like Church of God for life kind of a thing, you know? We were part of this unhealthy denomination. And to be sure, there were some members here who weren't given over to that. And I was very encouraged by that. But there were some members who just pretty frankly told me, if you ever think about leaving this church, uh, excuse me, having this church leave our denomination, we'll leave this church. I was made very, very sad by that statement. But I just kind of kept on going, preaching, teaching, leading. A bunch of elders were doing a bunch of good work, and things seemed to be going very well. And then finally, one night, before we left the denomination, it was a Wednesday night, and there were a group of guys standing up here talking after the Bible study. And uh, one of the old guard members of the church, who had specifically told me that, that she would leave if we ever left the denomination, she came up to me, she pulled me aside, and she said, Sean, I don't care what we call ourselves as long as we keep doing what we're doing. Right? Now, she, uh, she's not the most um, eloquent speaker in the church, but I under, what she meant there was, as long as we're continuing to preach the gospel, as long as people are being saved, as long as disciples are being made, as long as this church is growing in the right way, I'm on board, even if that means that we're not a part of this denomination. Guys, do you have any idea how much that encouraged my soul? The gospel is real. The Holy Spirit is alive and active in the life of this church. I couldn't believe it. She was putting that tribal identity marker to death. And she was showing a loyalty to God above all else. And so as I close out this very difficult and dark point number three, I want to close out on a point of hope. I want to let you know that as me and the other elders of this church examine the members of this church, I think we found that our hearts are very far from the heart of Benjamin. I think when I look at this church, I find very many people of different, you know, different families, different races, different classes, different political opinions, very strong political opinions, coexisting. And not coexisting because we're setting those things aside. Coexisting because we're committed to Jesus above all else. Because we are covenanted together in His grace. I am so encouraged when I consider this gathering of God's people and how little tribalism there is in our midst. Be encouraged. Finally, point number four. The sin of a nation. In this text, we see the entire nation of Israel sin in two really big ways. The first is uh, the way that they destroy Benjamin. In the days of the Civil War, there was a general, uh, General Sherman, and he was in charge of part of the Union Army down in the south, and at the end of a very long, difficult war with many lives lost and many resources spent, uh, General Sherman began what has been known to history as the scorched earth policy. And in the scorched earth policy... He utterly destroyed the South in order to put the South down and win, particularly the state of Georgia, and then out from there. Ethicists uh, may debate about General Sherman's strategy, but most historians agree that his methods were cruel but necessary to win the war, kind of like dropping the atom bomb on Japan. Cruel but necessary. Necessary. 
In this morning's text, we see Israel employing its own scorched earth policy against the tribe of Benjamin, but there is a very key difference between General Sherman and the people of Israel in this morning's text. In this morning's text, the policy was unnecessary. The people of Israel had already won the war. When they implement this scorched earth policy, killing men, women, and children, and livestock, and burning and taking food, and raising villages to the ground, they had already won the war. So why are they doing this? Well, they're doing it because they're utterly bent on revenge, which is, of course, forbidden by God's Word, but they're not being governed by God's Word, are they? They're being governed by what is right in their own eyes. If they were governed by God's Word, they would read Leviticus 19, verse 18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. If they were being governed by God's Word, they would have gone to Exodus 21, verses 23 and 24. And there they would have read these words. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Let me be clear. Uh, Many modern readers uh, take the, the verses we just read as a positive command. That is, if somebody takes your eye, you need to take their eye. If somebody kicks you, you need to kick them back. If somebody burns you, you need to burn them back. That's not what these verses mean. These verses are delimiting in nature. What does that mean? It means that they're intended to set the boundaries on justice. It means that God says, if somebody comes and knocks out your tooth, you can't kill them. If somebody, you get into a fight with someone and they take your eye, you can't come back and cut out their tongue. That's vengeance. It's not justice. In this morning's text, we see Israel ignoring Leviticus 19, ignoring Exodus 21, and choosing their own brand of justice. Let's stop and ask ourselves, what kind of punishment would have been just in this case? Well, certainly the putting to death of the men of Gibeah, handing them over for utter destruction. You could say maybe all the people of Gibeah. You could say that whole city is so corrupt, they just tolerate that sort of thing. They just let it happen in their midst. The whole city needs to go. Okay, that's reasonable. You might say, kill everyone who came out against Israel, and they basically did that. Other than that, there's really not much else that could be considered just in what Israel has done here. The second great sin of Israel in this morning's text is ironically committed in their attempt to clean up their first big sin. So big sin number one, they're going to try to fix it, and as they do, they commit big sin number two, and that's their solution to the scorched earth policy. In chapter 21, we find that Israel has painted herself in a corner. In anger and haste, Israel made a vow, which, take note, do not take vows or make promises in anger and haste. Don't go shopping for food at the house when you've been on a diet and you're hungry, right? Don't make vows in anger and haste. You're just going to be controlled by whatever emotion is most predominant in your mind at that moment. And so uh, the people of Israel, they've taken this vow in a moment of anger. We will not give our daughters to Benjamin. We've utterly destroyed them, but we're not going to help them build back up because we hate them. 
But then they begin to have second thoughts. They kind of see the consequences of what they've done. Kind of like a parent who, in a moment of anger, says, you're grounded for a year, you know. You're never going outside again. You're no cell phone. You're never going to talk to anybody. I'm spanking you every day. Not that I've ever been so frustrated as to do anything like that. And then, like, after four days of having the kids in the house with you, you're like, oh, I shouldn't have grounded them for this long. I need to kick them out of the house. On a much more serious level, Israel has come to see the destruction that they've wrought, the, the evil in the land, the death, the destruction, and, and they begin to take pity. And they, they go, man, we really, shouldn't have making that, we really shouldn't have taken that vow. And th- they don't want to back down on the vow. Remember, we went through this already with Jephthah. Jephthah made a vow to sacrifice his daughter. What should he have done? He should have repented of taking that vow. But he didn't. Israel should have just repented of making a vow in haste, but they don't. And so what do they do? They, they come up with a plan to kill and kidnap in order to acquire women to repopulate the land of Benjamin. One commentator says it like this. An assembly which had gathered to do justice for one single raped and murdered woman, woman ends up planning and promoting the murder of an entire town and the abduction and rape of the girls of two towns. That's bad. And there's a general wisdom principle that we see illustrated in this story that we would do well to remember, especially in our current climate. Sometimes the medicine is worse than the, di- the disease. Sometimes the medicine is worse than the disease. In our efforts to correct injustices, we can very often overcorrect or come up with solutions that seem like to, they make sense, but then they end up being utterly worthless. And when they prove themselves to be worthless, we find out that we've actually made things worse than they were in the first place. There's a reason why the author of Judges, right after he explores this justice gone wrong scenario, he goes right into verse 25 and says, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Friends, just because people are going around shouting justice, 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 does not mean that they are just. Just because people are crying out for justice in the streets, even when a real crime has been committed, does not mean that they actually understand what justice is. Maybe they have the bare minimum ability to recognize that an an injustice has taken place, but that does not mean that they have a a fully orbed understanding of what biblical justice is and therefore that they know in any way how to respond appropriately. And if they don't know how to respond appropriately, they're likely in the end going to create more injustice. When we respond to injustice with what seems right in our own eyes, more injustice will always be the result. We live in an age where, by God's grace, many in the American church are being called to account for their sins. This is good. Sin must be confronted. Unfortunately, as this process unfolds, many American Christians, American churches, and American Christian institutions They recapitulate the sins of Benjamin. They do the same thing. They close their ranks. They try to protect their own. They're willing to go to war to protect their own tribe rather than have to admit their own sins. 
And yet, it must also be noted that the way that some Christians, churches, and institutions are responding to this injustice and to these sins is often as unjust as the initial sins themselves. We cannot, for example, swing from the good old boy world where, you know, a man can do whatever he wants to do to a woman and and we just need to kind of turn our heads the other way and, you know, kind of side with all men. We cannot swing from that to believe all women. That is equally unjust. We cannot advocate for the poor by robbing the rich. We cannot fix racism with a more sophisticated brand of racism. Rather, we have to look to God's Word. We have to wrestle with it. We have to examine it thoroughly. Guys, as I have conversations with people who tend to do the same kinds of things that we see here uh, with Israel in chapter 21, which, by the way, I'm, I'm including myself in that group, but as I, as I talk to people who I think are creating more injustice by trying to fix past injustices, what I find is that they don't have a, as thorough of an understanding of God's Word as they think they do. It's very superficial. So we have to examine God's Word thoroughly. We have to apply it carefully. And then we, we have to act charitably towards people with whom we may disagree, our brothers and sisters in Christ, who are striving in the right direction. They want to do justice. They want to bring about righteousness, but they're confused. They've been informed more by the culture than by the Bible, more by the world than the Word. If they are honestly trying to be faithful to Jesus and they're just messing up, there has to be something in us that calls us to be patient with them, to be willing to instruct them, to be willing to bear with them as they try to get it right. And then also the humility to look within ourselves and ask ourselves if we're getting it right. Now let me summarize that by being as clear as possible, okay? We must confront sin wherever sin is found. We must hold our tribe accountable. But we must not let our inflamed passions or the wisdom of this world determine our response to sin. We must be governed by God's word above all else. If not, we're going to end up just like Israel in Judges 21, coming up with foolish solutions to the problems that we ourselves created because we didn't listen to God in the first place. Outro. End of the sermon. Here we go. You ready? Six more pages and then we're done. In closing, I want to make an anti-application. An anti-application. I want to cut off what could be a false application taken away from this morning's text. My fear is that someone here might listen to this sermon and interpret it through a false theological and historical lens. So, here we go. If you think this text, and really just the whole book of Judges, but this text in particular, is about how America needs to turn back to God, you've missed it entirely. You've misunderstood what's happening. This text is not about America. This text is about the people of God. America is not the people of God. God's people are in America, and I praise God that I'm one of them. I love this country, flaws and all. But this country is not God's covenant people. In the Old Testament, God's covenant people was the nation of Israel. 
In the new covenant, God's covenant people are the church. All those who are indwelt by the Spirit of God, brought together by the blood of Christ, together as one body under His holy name. This morning's text is about what happens when God's people do not remain faithful to God because they've abandoned His word. Which means that our application of these truths should be aimed at the church, not the secular nation. The secular nation has never looked at God's word to find God's truth. Maybe individual politicians and founding fathers did in some way explicitly or less than explicitly look at God's word. But the nation itself is not a theocracy. It's not a God-ruled government. So what is our application for the church? Well, it has to begin with a recognition, a sad recognition, but a true recognition that many Christian churches at home and abroad are a living, breathing illustration of Judges chapter 19, 20, and 21. There are many churches that are like the people of Israel in the days of the judges, corrupt at every level. Individual members are living like the world. Deacons are embezzling funds. Pastors are taking modern-day concubines. Tribalism is rampant, and true biblical justice seems to be hard to find. We must be honest and admit that this is true, and yet, friends, we must not give in to a spirit of secular cynicism about the church. The church has been purchased by the blood of Christ. The church will win. The church will grow in holiness. The gates of hell will never prevail against the church. Sometimes the church does what's right in its own eyes. But the promise that we have as God's people is that God will constantly redirect our gaze. As we kind of get distracted from looking at the Word, and as we look up out and at the world, God's always going to be like, hey, 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 look at me. Look back here. That's our promise. We must not forget that promise. And we must not, I don't want to say this. We must have eyes to see the, the thousands, millions, billions, trillions of evidences of God's grace alive in the church today. I know how easy it is to be cynical, to think that all churches everywhere are like the the book of Judges. Everyone everywhere is just doing what's right in their own eyes. Friends, God is at work. Look at this room. Look at all you here today. Do you guys realize we read three long chapters of Scripture together? I didn't hear any moaning. There was some kid over there that let out a, yawn, a, a long yawn. Ugh. But by an unregenerate kid, that might, should be noted. But by and large, in this room, you have a people who are not doing what's right in their own eyes. And they're counting the cost to do what's right in the eyes of the Lord. God is alive. He's doing the same kinds of things in other churches, even in this city. He's doing the same kinds of things in Christian seminaries and, and missions agencies and, and uh, poverty relief organizations and, and, and justice organizations like Feed the Storks God is do, or Save the Storks. God's doing it, guys. He is protecting us. He is reforming us. The motto of the Reformation, the heart cry of the Re- Reformation was this phrase, Semper Reformanda. It means always reforming. 
The reformers said that because they realized that even though they were in the process of reforming the church, that you reform today and you can forget tomorrow. You can straighten the wheel and then kind of swerve again in a minute. As a church, we always have to be looking to God's word and reforming ourselves according to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so as we close our series in the book of Judges, we can rejoice. We can celebrate because we know that even though none of these judges was sufficient to lead God's people into the final salvation, that Jesus Christ, our final judge, has already done everything he needs to do and he has already accomplished our salvation. And that leads us to rejoice. Listen to the promise of this final judge in Psalm 96 and what it leads the people to do. It says, let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy. For the Lord, he comes. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. So my final question for you as we end our sermon time together is, on that day when he comes back, will you be found among those who are rejoicing? Let me pray. God, we... We rejoice for the grace that's here, present with us now, in the person and work of your Holy Spirit, leading us to consider the life and work of your Son, Jesus Christ, and what he accomplished for us on the cross. The way that he's built us together into a family. God, would you, as we finish out this time in the book of Judges, shape our vision, constantly bring us back to your word. Keep our eyes focused on the glory above. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.